0: Hello, and welcome to the Redeeming God podcast. I'm your teacher for this podcast, Jeremy Myers. We're talking about Ephesians 1-2 today for the main portion of the podcast. But before we get to that, a little discussion on gun violence, and then a question from a reader. So for the current events portion of the podcast today, I do want to talk a little bit about the events that happened in Boulder, Colorado this week. If you've been paying attention to the news, you know about this shooter that shot 10 people down there in Boulder, Colorado, and it is another horrible tragedy to strike the United States. I know these sorts of things happen in other parts of the world as well, but these ones here in the States always seem to get a lot of publicity, partly because of our gun culture here, lots of people like guns, and uh, that's not as much true in other other countries, but anyway, it's the st- it's the case here. And then we have this great divide here in the United States between those who want guns and those who don't, and how to solve that. Uh, my heart and, and, and prayer and, and thoughts, and I know that doesn't do much for the families who have lost loved ones down there in Boulder. We need to do something about this violent situation, the violence uh In our country, let me just say though that I don't think that the media is giving us the best story here. Um, I I was on Twitter a lot this week as this tragedy was happening. I'm going to turn this music down. Hold on. I was on I was on uh, Twitter some this week as this tragedy was happening, and I was uh, appalled at some of what I saw from, uh, people who want to promote gun control in the United States, the things they were saying before any of the facts came out, they didn't know anything about the situation or the shooter or what weapon he used or anything. And they were calling for gun, uh, gun control. And, and worst of all, they were saying that it was almost certainly, in fact, I saw some people who were saying it was certainly a white man who shot up, uh, who shot these 10 people in Boulder, Colorado, and uh, they didn't have any details yet. Uh, one person said the fact that he was white was proven by the fact that he was taken alive. Because if he was dead, I mean, if he was black, then the cops would have shot him, would have killed him. Uh, those, that sort of, of, of behavior, that sort of talk is not helpful in this situation. I, I would encourage you all, and I, myself as well, it, it, as these things go forward, To withhold judgment, to withhold, to stop these sorts of statements, this this hurtful and harmful rhetoric uh, about mass shootings, because all they do is, those sorts of statements, all they do is create more division and hurt and strife. And and we don't need more of that here in the country or anywhere else in the world. Um, And the fact of the matter is, and and some people said, you know, based on that, that uh, the statistics prove that uh, most mass shooters are white. And also that if they are black, that, that they almost always get killed by police. The fact of the matter is, is that's not true. Uh, and, and this is what happens in this debate over gun control. I firmly believe we should have a debate over gun control. I, I believe that there should be a discussion, a fact-based in, uh, discussion about guns and who should get them and who shouldn't and, and, and why we have them and, and all sorts of those, those sorts of questions. Okay, and discussions. But what happens is is this, this harmful and hurtful rhetoric in the middle of pain about people who have, have lost loved ones in a shooting. Now, now you have people adding gasoline to the fire by making all of these factually inaccurate and hurtful statements about mass shooters. Um, the fact of the matter is many people do believe that most mass shooters are white, that is true that most people think that. The reason though that most people think that is because uh, white mass shooters get a lot more public attention in the news than do mass shooters of other races. Uh, Statistically, and you can go to the mass shooting tracker, which is uh, the tracker that the media often uses as well. And you just take one year, I went back and looked at 2019, As an example, two years ago, there were 72 mass shooters in 2019. And of those, um, let's see, uh, 21 were white. Okay, so there were four whose race was unknown. But uh, of those who were known, 21 were white, 37 were black, eight were Latino, and six were members of some other group. Okay, so 72 and and 51% of those are black. I'm not saying anything about black people here or, or, you know, the blacks cause most of the mass shootings. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying it's not true that most, the vast majority of mass shooters are white. No, uh, it is true that the vast majority of of news media attention about mass shooters is only for white people. Um, But uh, it's not true that that means, therefore... That most mass shooters are white, and that sort of, of statement by people is just not helpful. Um, and also, it's not true that when black mass shooters kill people, that they uh, end up getting killed, whereas white people get arrested. That also is not true. Um, in general, mass shooters believe they're going to get killed. Uh, they, they sort of feel like they're they're going to end up being being shot. And so uh, many of them are shot, but it's not all black mass shooters get caught, get, get shot, and white mass shooters just get arrested. That also is not true. Um, th- if you look at the cases, when a person resists arrest or continues to try to shoot people or tries to shoot the police, they get killed. It doesn't matter about their race. Uh, whether they're white or black, Asian, Hispanic, whatever, if you try to keep killing people when the police show up or you, worse yet, not worse yet, but or you also try to shoot the police, you're going to get shot. And and that's true across the board. Uh, Meanwhile, if you put down your guns and lay on the ground and follow orders uh, and do not resist arrest, then you're going to get arrested. You're not going to get shot. So anyway, all of these, all, all of this... We have a horrible, painful situation, and the media and the gun control group uh, and even some from the gun rights group uh, pour gasoline onto this fire, and it makes it impossible to have a rational, reasonable conversation about guns and gun violence and the solutions to stopping gun violence here in the United States. All right. So all I'm saying is, is when these tragedies happen, number one, withhold judgment, don't get on Twitter and start talking about getting rid of people's guns, number one. Or number two, who the gun person, the perpetrator, the the, the, the shooter, the alleged shooter is supposed supposed to be, who you hope it's going to be found it interesting, of course, that as soon as they found out that the shooter this week was not this white Caucasian, but was a, a, a an immigrant from Syria, a Syrian immigrant here to the United States, uh, most of the media coverage of that shooting completely stopped. Uh, that also is tragic. Again, if we're going to bring attention to gun violence and ways to stop it, we can't stop media coverage uh, just because the shooter doesn't fit the media narrative. Um Maybe we should stop all media coverage. Maybe media coverage of gun violence is not the way to go at all. Anyway, these are the sorts of things we need to have a conversation about. And it's not helpful for us to to go off and make comments about race or guns or or, or other things in these in these matters. We need to instead focus on the lives that were lost and the hurting families that are left here to deal with this grief and loss. And then going forward to have a rational and fact-based conversation about what we can do about gun violence. I'm all in favor of that. And I think most people are as well. Um, but so far, we have not been able to do that here in the United States. And I think in large part, it's because these incendiary comments are made in the middle of violence, and these gun violence, these violent gun situations. And uh, people, it's difficult for people to get past some of those Uh Later. So, anyway, I, I don't know where you're at on the gun violent uh, the the gun control debate. Uh, full disclosure: I have guns. I own guns. I grew up in Montana. I have hunted with them, and um, so I, I believe that we should be allowed to have and own guns. This is my view. Um, obviously, criminals and uh, mentally people who are who who are not all there mentally should not be having guns. And, um, so, but the the question is then is how do you keep them from getting them? It seems right now that those who want gun control, their their solution is take guns away from all the law-abiding citizens. Well, the problem with that is then all the people who break the law, they they have the guns. and and so, how are you going to take the guns away from them? Because they're the ones who need to have the guns taken away from them. anyway, it, it's part of the it's it, we need a debate. we need a discussion, an honest, Fact-based discussion about it, and I, I'm good. I'm I'm going off on this, so let's just let's just stop the discussion here. Look, pray for the families. If you know any of the families, come around them to love and support them and encourage them for this tragic loss that they have experienced this last week. Okay, and um, these things are going to happen again. We live in a sinful, violent world, and uh, it would be helpful if whatever side of the debate you're on. If we could uh, refrain from finger-pointing, name-calling, and accusations, look at facts, and have an honest discussion about this with, with one another to come up with a solution so that these things can stop. Okay, let's go on to this reader, or this question from a reader. You have a mail message. So uh, I got a question from a reader, and the the, um, the person asked to remain anonymous, so I will not read his name, but here's here's what he wrote. When I was seven, I accepted Jesus. I grew up in a pastor's home, but was never discipled. When I hit my college years, I became involved in sexual sin and alcohol. Unfortunately, I was unfaithful to my wife and had bad language. I taught Sunday school and was a deacon. Nine years ago, I had a severe breakdown. Then I read that people who only profess Christ and then fall away, according to Hebrews, were never really saved and now cannot be I believed everything I taught I loved the church and everything involved it wasn't until after the breakdown that I found the Hebrews passages and the teaching on the blasphemy of the holy spirit I was mortified I tried to repent but felt no relief I believe I am forever lost because according to Hebrews I spurned God's grace and trampled uh, the the phrase is trampling the, the son of god under their feet but Uh, This crushed my heart because even in sin, I was sharing the gospel with relatives. I've never wanted others to go to hell. I have kids and grandkids. I want them to know Christ. I am 69 and terrified that I am now forever lost. You can hear the pain and the fear in this sort of message. And so my heart goes out to to you who wrote this uh, to me. And uh, I get lots of emails and messages like this, largely because of my book on The Unpardonable Sin. Uh, it's, called, it's titled, If You Haven't Read It and You Have These Sorts of Questions or Issues, I do encourage you to get it. It's available on Amazon. It's called, uh, Why Why You Have Not Committed the Unforgivable Sin. Okay? Um, the bottom line truth is here is that lots of Christians have these sorts of struggles and issues, and the reason, the primary reason is because... They've never really understood the free offer of the gospel, the free offer that anyone who believes in Jesus has everlasting life. This is the truth Jesus teaches all over the place. John 3, 16, John 5, 24, John 6, 47, so on throughout the gospel of John. This is the the, the truth that Paul teaches, like in Romans and Ephesians, okay? So, uh, Lots of people think that their eternal life to some degree or another is based on their obedience, based on their good works, based on their faithfulness. And so when they sin, when they mess up, when they commit adultery or have bad language or drink alcohol or get involved in sexual sin or something, then they become terrified that that this proves they were never really a Christian in the first place, that they that they, they that that God isn't really at work in their life, and therefore they aren't actually Christian, or they lost their eternal life, or they gave it back, or whatever. The truth of the matter is, though, is if you believed in Jesus for everlasting life, then guess what? You have everlasting life. And everlasting life, by definition, cannot ever be lost. No matter what you say, no matter what you think, no matter what you do. Everlasting life, by definition, is everlasting Okay? If it wasn't everlasting, it has the wrong name, okay? And so I talk about this a lot in various places in this podcast and in my gospel—some uh, of my online uh, discipleship courses at redeeminggod.com, but— um... That's the. That's what I. I always tell people. That's where you need to start. If you fear you've forget. If 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 you fear you've committed the unforgivable sin, then you need to make sure first of all that you have eternal life. How do you get eternal life? How do you receive eternal life by believing in Jesus for it? If you've never done that, then then believe in Jesus now. Because now, once you've done that, then you can know that no matter what you've done, said, thought in the past, no matter what you will do, will say, what you will think in the future, you have eternal life. And that is the promise of God. Now, what about some of these difficult passages in the Bible, such as these warning passages in Hebrews? And they're not the only difficult text in Scripture. Um, I, I, I'm not going to be able to teach in this podcast about those texts Uh, So what I would do, what I would direct you to, is to go read some of the articles I have placed on my website about those warning passages. In fact, there's almost, uh, most of the questions I get uh, from online or Facebook or wherever, I've written uh, about those questions at redeeminggod.com in one way or another. So if you have questions about the warning passages of Hebrews 6 or Hebrews 10 or whatever, just go to my website, redeeminggod.com, scroll to the bottom, find that little search uh, box down there. Type in Hebrews 6 or Hebrews 10 or, or whatever verse you're wondering about or question and uh, click that little search box and uh, the, the website will give you the results from your search. And, and, and so uh, and I, I'll, I'll be adding more obviously as we go along. Eventually I want to write a whole set of books, probably three books on tough texts of the Bible and, of course, the warning passages of Hebrews would be there. But the bottom-line truth from the Hebrews passages is that if you read them carefully in their context, yes, the author of Hebrews is, is giving warnings to these Hebrew Christians. They were uh, people who used to be Jews. Uh, they were in Judaism, and they converted to Christianity. But now, because of persecution, some of them are returning to Judaism. And the author of Hebrews is saying, don't you dare. Don't do that. And so sometimes the author of Hebrews writes uh, warning passages, there's five of them in the letter to Hebrews, uh, telling them what will happen to them if they do return to Judaism. And um, we we greatly misunderstand and misinterpret these texts today because we don't fully understand the context uh, and especially the Hebrew, the Old Testament Hebrew passages that the author of Hebrews is referring to with these. So once you understand the context, you see that he's not warning people. could have been a she. I sometimes wonder if the author of Hebrews is anonymous because it was a she. Anyway, whoever the author of Hebrews was, um, the author is warning them that, uh, yes, there is a warning, but this warning is not that you're going to lose your eternal life. The warning is not that they are going to end up in hell for all eternity because they turned away from Jesus or said something they shouldn't have or went back to the ways of Judaism and the sacrificial system and the temple and all of that. No, there's other grave things that can happen, but losing your eternal life is not one of them, okay? That's all I'm going to say about those passages, just because they're very involved and very in-depth, and I would just encourage you—I'm going to include a couple links in the notes for this podcast episode. Just go to redeeminggod.com Ephesians 1-2. And um, there will be a couple links there of a few places on my website where I have talked about the warning passages of Hebrews. Okay, with that in mind, let's get into our study today of Ephesians 1-2. Wow, (laughs) I wasn't expecting that. I have all these sort of random intro-outro music things, which I picked up somewhere. And every week, I just sort of randomly picked three. So uh, that one was a little uh, exciting. (laughs) We're looking at Ephesians 1-2 today in our textual study for this podcast episode. And the passage, the verse says this, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. (laughs) Now, you might say, Jeremy, there is not a whole lot there. In fact, that is a fairly standard greeting from Paul, In many of his letters. And that's true. Uh, It is a standard greeting from Paul. uh, And it, it initially doesn't seem like there's a whole lot here, but there's not a single word or verse in Scripture that is not without significant meaning. And I could probably teach, let's see, uh, I could easily teach four full sermons on this one verse if I wanted to. Four, you know, my sermons are roughly 30 minutes uh, or so, 30 to 40 minutes on, on average when I was preaching and when I still do. I could easily get three or four of those sermons out of this one verse if I wanted to, but I'm not going to do that to you today. I'm going to try to summarize some of the main truths we have here uh, and, and why we're dealing with just one verse here in this podcast episode. So first we have, uh, in the first half of the verse, we have two blessings. Remember last week I told you, and I sort of summarized Ephesians for you, that uh, chapters 1, 2, and 3 are all about our blessings, our riches, the great things God has given to us. And so right here in verse 2, Paul doesn't waste any time, and he initially lists two of these blessings. He's introducing them here. Uh, Paul will be talking more about both of these blessings as we work our way through Ephesians. But he's introducing these two blessings here. The first one is grace. Um, Grace is, uh, there's absolutely no way I could ever emphasize grace enough. Okay? Uh, I've often thought that if I could only teach about one thing for the rest of my life, it would be grace. Uh, Grace is the beginning and end of Christianity. It is the beginning and end of discipleship. I am fully convinced that if you do not fully understand grace, or if you have some wrong thinking about grace, that you're never going to progress in your life as a follower of Jesus. So what is grace? Well, uh, it, it's it's technically, it means God's unmerited favor. It's when God gives you something that you don't deserve. Okay? Uh, it's different from mercy. Mercy is when God doesn't give you something you do deserve. Grace is uh, similar but uh, different in that grace is when God gives us something good that we that we don't deserve. We haven't earned it. We haven't worked for it. But He gives it to us anyway, and it's a good gift. Uh, some people say grace is an acrostic: G R A C E, God's riches at Christ's expense. I don't have a, a big deal problem with that. I don't think it's quite as accurate as thinking of it as God's unmerited favor, and uh, that's partly because. I don't really believe Jesus bought anything for us through the cross. Uh, Jesus accomplished something extremely significant that that could not have been accomplished in any other way through dying on the cross. Uh, But he didn't have to buy anything for us from God, or some people think from Satan, uh, by shedding his blood on the cross. Okay, so even though grace, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches, that's true, at Christ's expense, well... Mm, No, not really. God gives us grace because God is gracious. End of story. Period. Okay? So, uh, what is grace? Well, um, it is unmerited favor, and as I've already indicated, I would say it is the most important concept in Christianity. It is one of the things that sets us, sets Christianity apart from all other, uh, you know, religions, if you want to call them that, or uh, perspectives on, on how to get good with God or whatever is out there. I do have a whole entry in my Gospel Dictionary online course on grace. Um, And let me just uh, read for you a little bit of what I taught in that entry. Here's what I said. I said, grace is the key to every aspect of the gospel. And I'm not talking about the weak-kneed, limp, powerless, feeble grace that you sometimes find in Christian churches or Christian theology today. I'm talking about the shocking, outrageous, scandalous— indiscriminate, senseless, irrational, unfair, irreligious, ridiculous, absurd, offensive, infinite grace, which Jesus exhibited during his life and which is found everywhere in God's activity towards humans. That was a long list of adjectives there, but if you think through them, that's what grace is. And if your grace is not that, if it's not shocking, if it's not offensive to some people. No, God can't behave that way. That's not fair. Well, guess what? That's grace. Uh, Biblical grace is so shocking. The only people really who ever object to it are religious people who think that their good behavior somehow gets them some sort of special privilege or position with God. Okay? Okay. Uh, sinners are happy to accept grace because they recognize how evil they are, how, how much they've sinned, and they realize there's no way I'm ever going to be good with God unless he just says, hey, buddy, you're good. You're good with me, okay? But that's what grace does, and, and that's why grace is central to the gospel. Uh, when we understand the gospel, we see that God's grace, uh, through grace, God loves everybody, Okay, everybody. He forgives everybody for everything, all right? Uh, there's no strings attached, no fine print, no qualifications, no limits, no ongoing requirements. That's why, in from the question from the reader earlier, it's uh, why I always mention grace, the free offer, the gracious offer of eternal life, Um to people because uh, typically they don't understand grace they don't they, they think they have to work for it, earn it uh, live a certain way in order to to keep it that's not grace there's no amount of sin that can restrict the flow of god's grace or limit god's grace in fact as soon as we start to limit god's grace in some way uh it's no longer grace grace is unlimited uh, and so it, it's 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 really central to the gospel. I could talk a lot about grace, but uh, take my take my lesson on grace at the Gospel Dictionary online course if you haven't already. And again, this goes back to Christianity 101. As I look around the church and Christianity today, and I see problems, and I see disagreements, and I, I see people who have... have fail to understand scripture, they fail to understand God, they have difficulty even understanding themselves or understanding other people, or, or m- most of all, interacting with other people. Okay, It all comes down in Christianity to one thing. All of those failures come from a failure to understand grace. Um, if we could just all get a grasp on grace, it would fix so many issues in Christianity, and in fact, so many issues in the world as well. Because once you understand grace, everything else falls into place. A proper understanding of grace is the first step in Christian discipleship. And so if you never understand grace, then you never take the first step in discipleship. Um, And so anyway, I could talk a lot about grace. I I already am. I'm going off on all these rabbit holes about grace. But the thing is, is grace, grace is going to be talked about more. Paul will write more about grace in Ephesians, so we'll save some of these discussions for later. Uh, For example, in Ephesians 2. The second blessing Paul mentions here is peace. Grace and peace. Uh, Obviously, grace leads to peace. Without grace, there could be no peace. And this uh, peace is with God. We have peace with God and peace with ourselves. You might not realize it, but you need to be at peace with yourself. If You're dealing with guilt and shame over what you've said or done in the past, and that means you are not at peace with yourself. And uh, so grace helps you come to peace with yourself, and also peace with others, uh, peace with our enemies, peace with our neighbors, peace with our family members. And uh, grace is the the fountain, the source from which the river of peace flows. And of course, in this world, we all want peace, especially in light of all of the violence, and bloodshed, and war that we see going on, and even the political divide in our country. We all want peace. The problem is. Nobody in our world knows how to achieve peace or get peace. Most people, most countries, most uh, governments sort of have this idea of uh, peace through war. Have you heard about this? Um, sort of comes from uh, 1984, the book. Uh, but, but ironically, we, we all practice it. it. We Whenever we talk, we hear governments talk about getting peace in the Middle East or peace in our neighborhoods or or, you know, peace— Wherever there's conflict and bloodshed, peace in Portland or peace in Minneapolis because of the riots and things, the violence from BLM and Antifa, how do we go about achieving peace? Well, usually it involves uh, more violence, <laughs> peace through violence. Uh, we need There's people out there with guns, so we need to send in people with bigger guns to take away their guns. Okay, We need to force them through violence, threat of violence, to do what we want. that's sort of the general idea of people's pathway to peace. Well, they're not doing what we want, so we are going to force them to do what we want. And how are we going to do that? With violence. Isn't that odd? We try to achieve peace through violence. This, by the way, is called the myth of redemptive violence. Um, The world runs on the myth of redemptive violence. We think that we can end violence by good violence sort of a fight fire with fire sort of a mentality well they're violent over there how are we going to stop them we're going to be violent back but our violence is righteous our violence is redemptive their violence is evil ours is good so we can fight their evil violence with our good violence but of course it never works because by the way the the enemy over there is thinking the exact same thing they think our violence is evil And so they, and their violence is good. And so they're operating under the same mentality. And this approach never, ever, ever, and has never led to peace. Okay, but uh, Paul writes here about peace. We have grace and peace. And guess what? Jesus does not operate according to redemptive violence, the myth of redemptive violence. Jesus does not use violence to fight violence. Jesus showed the world a way to peace. And it is much different than the way the world tries to achieve peace. It was through dying himself on the cross. It was through forgiving his enemies. It was through not retaliating against them when they wronged him. Okay, Uh, we'll be talking a lot more about this, especially again, grace and peace is mentioned here, but these are two uh, very prominent themes in Ephesians chapter two. Uh, And so we'll be talking a lot more about how Jesus brought peace to the world when uh, we study Ephesians chapter 2. Okay, so those are the two blessings, grace and peace. Again, I could talk a lot more about each, but let's move on. The final half of this verse talks about the two sources for these blessings. We have two blessings and two sources for the blessings. The two sources are, uh, they come from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, uh, by the way, it's very similar to what Paul had already written in Ephesians 1.1 where he's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Okay, so uh, Paul has his authority as an apostle by God uh, and through Jesus. And uh, this is where grace and peace comes from also. Let's talk about God the Father first. I think sometimes we as Christians take it for granted that God is our Father, that we that Jesus invites us to speak to God as our Father. When, when, when his disciples came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray, and he began by saying, when you pray, say, our Father— That was a revolutionary introduction to prayer. You go, you'll search in vain for that sort of way of approaching God in the Hebrew Scriptures in Old Testament. Most people back then believed that if you were going to talk to God, if you were going to pray to God, you needed uh, several things. You needed uh, probably a mediator, a human mediator, which we would think of as a priest. You might need a sacrifice because you can't just go to God. You need to, you know, kill something first. Um... You might need a temple, you know, a special place where you need to go to talk to God. And even then, you're not actually going to talk to God. You're going to present your needs to the priest, and then the priest goes, talks to God for you. Okay, and so when Jesus says, hey, guess what? Just talk to God and call him Father, that's a crazy revolutionary idea back then. And we take it for granted today because we all just pray to God anytime we want, anywhere we want, about anything we want. We don't feel like we, most of the time, we don't feel like we need to go through a priest. We don't need to kill any bird or sheep or anything. And uh, we, you know, we don't need to go to a temple. Sometimes Christians today, though, do believe some of those things. We think, oh, I need to give something up so God will pay attention to me. I'm going to give up meat. I'm going to give up whatever it is. Uh, You know, give up TV uh, for a week. Uh, so, so God will, will hear my prayers better. Uh, oh, well, God's going to hear my prayers better at church than he does at my house. Uh, boy, God's going to hear my prayers. If I go talk to my pastor about it, cause you know, the pastor, he's close. He's in with God. He he's close to God. He's closer than I am. So, so God won't hear my prayers, but he'll definitely hear my pastor's prayers. Okay. Uh, same mentality. And that's not what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to talk to God as our father. I'm off on a tangent here. Paul is not talking here about prayer. But he is talking about God our Father, and it's a revolutionary concept that God is our Father. And you can go to him—I know maybe you didn't have a good human father, but uh, God is the best Father. He is the perfect Father. He is the way fathers are supposed to be. And we know from various places in Scripture that God loves us as our Father, and he only gives good gifts to us as our Father. We've already seen two of those good gifts, grace and peace. There's numerous other good gifts that God gives to us as his children. One thing God does not give to us is bad gifts, okay? Uh, he's not going to give us a scorpion. He's not going to give us a rock when we ask for bread. Uh, and you might say, well, Jeremy, I've had bad things happen in my life. God sent those into, me li- into my life. No, he did not. This is another thing that I often try to emphasize to people when people come to me and say, God is punishing me for, and then they tell me what they've done. Okay, God does not punish us. I know that's a a... a, a crazy idea. Yes, he disciplines us. There's a difference between difference, uh, discipline and punishment. But when bad things come into your life, it's not necessarily discipline either. Bad things usually come into our life simply because uh, sin bears its own punishment with it. When we sin, when we disobey, when we do things God doesn't want us to, God doesn't say, oh, I told you not to, and then he starts hitting us. No, he doesn't do that. He warns us against sin because sin hurts. Sin hurts us. And so when bad things come upon us, it's because sin is painful. And maybe it wasn't something we did. Maybe it was something someone else did. And that's not fair. I'm getting hurt because of what they did. Yeah, that's not fair. Uh, But sadly, that's how sin works in this sin-filled world. And it's one of the reasons God warns us against sin, so that we don't hurt ourselves and we don't hurt other people. Now, thankfully, God is our Father. He walks with us through those difficult trying situations, those painful circumstances. Uh, he doesn't send them upon us, but he does walk uh, through them with us. Uh, so so uh, that's what one of the things he does as our father, just as any good father would. Oh, you're scared to walk down the block because there's a big dog down there? Come on, I'll walk with you. Let's go hand in hand. That's how with God, our father walks with us. We're going to be talking a lot more. Again, this is introductory to some of the themes that Paul is going to be talking about in Ephesians. So we'll be talking more about some of uh, the blessings we have with God as our Father. Uh, Finally, then, the second source of blessings is the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Paul is basically sort of uh, showing here with his word, and, that uh, Jesus is God as well. Uh, Obviously, it's it's one God in three persons, the view of the Trinity— Um, So we have the two persons here, but they are equal in um, divinity and and many other character character attributes as well. Uh, Now, why does Paul have these three terms, though? Uh, Lord Jesus Christ. Well, lots of people get confused by this. Lord is a title. It means like, um, you know, king or president. So you can refer to Jesus as Lord, just like you you could refer to... You know, the king as king, the the king at the time. And even, you know, if you're in England or whatever, there's only one king. There's a queen right now, but you get the point. Uh, There's only one president in the United States right now. So uh, if you just refer to the president, then people know who you're talking about. And it's you are talking about scripture, you're talking about the Lord. Well, people generally going to refer and understand that you're referring to Jesus, but that's not his name. Um, Jesus is his name. And that's the second word Paul uses here. Jesus is the personal name of Jesus, just like I'm Jeremy. Uh, Jeremy's my name. Jesus is his name. Strangely enough, lots of people think that Christ is his name. So a lot of times when we talk about Jesus or write about Jesus, we refer to Christ. Oh, I'm going to pray to Christ. I'm going to ask Christ. Have you asked Christ into your life? Well, guess what? Christ is not a name. Christ is another title. It's a Hebrew title. Actually, it's a Greek. uh, Christ is a Greek title for a Hebrew word. Uh, Messiah, Mashiach, okay? And uh, it means Savior or Deliverer, something like that. And uh, so it also is a title because Savior is not a name, Deliverer is not a name. It indicates uh, what a person will do. And so we have Lord, he's the Lord of all, King of all. We have Jesus, that's his name. Then we have what he will do. He's the Messiah, he's the Savior, he's the Deliverer of the world. Why is all that important? Look, we've just talked about grace and peace. It comes from God. But how did God give that to us? He gave it to us through our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and Jesus brought us grace and peace. Ephesians is going to show us how he did this. Uh, these two, uh, two of our greatest blessings we have from God, our Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ, are grace and peace. And uh, we'll see in the rest of Ephesians how these came from God and how they were revealed to us, brought to us, delivered to us through Jesus Christ. Okay, so that's Ephesians 1-2. We're going to pick up next week in Ephesians 1-3, where Paul begins to explain further blessings and riches that are ours in Jesus Christ, that belong to us, that have been given to us in Jesus Christ. So make sure you join us then. And look, if you uh, want to submit a question, to the podcast, maybe possibly have me answer it uh, in an episode, just uh, again, go to redeeminggod.com and uh, find the contact me section. It's right, it's right down there near the search box on the bottom and just fill out that contact form and um, I'll, get, I'll get it that way. If you get my newsletters, you're part of my discipleship group, you can always just respond to any email, reply to any email, and I get the questions that way as well. Okay. Hey, thanks to you so much for listening to uh, this podcast episode on Ephesians 1 2. We'll see you next week when we pick up with Ephesians 1 3.